Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Jesus also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager who was accused of wasting his possessions. The rich man called him in and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What will I do since my master is taking away the management position from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I will do so that when I am removed from my position as manager, people will receive me into their houses. He called each one of his master's debtors to him. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, Six hundred gallons of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bills, sit down quickly, and write three hundred. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, Six hundred bushels of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write four hundred and eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of the light are. I tell you, make friends for yourselves with unrighteous mammon, so that when it runs out, they will welcome you into the eternal dwellings. The person who is faithful with very little is also faithful with much. And the person who is unrighteous with very little is also unrighteous with much. So if you have not been faithful with unrighteous mammon, who will entrust you with what is really valuable? If you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you something to be your own? No servant can serve two masters. Indeed, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. The Pharisees who loved money also heard all these things and sneered at him. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of people, but God knows your hearts. In fact, what is highly regarded among people is an abomination in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, the only one who is qualified to teach us who we should serve. Today we're going to talk about money. I know no one really wants to talk about money, especially here in the church. The church is supposed to be for spiritual things, right? Well, the reality is that Jesus isn't giving us a choice here. We must talk about money this morning. And the other reality is that money is very spiritual, isn't it? And first of all, in the sense that God owns everything, all money that we have in our bank accounts, that all belongs to God. We also know how much time we spend thinking about money, how we spend our days busy attaining it and gaining it, and we spend our nights worrying about not having enough of it. We also know, as Paul said, that money, the love of money can lead to all sorts of evils. I'm sure all of us can name marriages or families or even churches that have been destroyed because of the love of money. So money is a very spiritual thing. It's something that we must address in the church. And as in all things money, it's all about the bottom line, isn't it? And the bottom line today is this. You cannot serve both God and, well, the text says mammon, but we're going to use money because that's a, a clearer way for us to understand that word. I want to make sure you, you heard that right. Jesus did not say, do not serve uh, God and money. 
He's not laying out a choice. He's not establishing the 11th commandment. He said you cannot serve both God and money. It's an utter impossibility. You can't have more than one master. And when it comes to money, there's something that we should all realize and something that Jesus is trying to teach us here that money is a merciless master. I know it doesn't look like that, at least not at first. Money glows at first, right? Money is very attractive at first. Money looks like those glamorous celebrities that are trying to sell you a credit card with all the the free miles and the the free cash back. Money looks like the the very well-dressed investment advisor who assures you that he will make your money work for you. Money looks like the, the, the perfect college education that leads to the dream job with the dream salary which will allow you to purchase all of your earthly desires. That's one side of the picture though. What they don't tell you is the other side of the picture that if you don't pay off your credit card every month you won't get any free miles but you will get an astronomical interest rate. What the investment advisor may not tell you right away is that you have to keep shoveling him money if you want your money want him to be able to make your money work for you. What most people don't realize about a college education until too late, although more and more are realizing this in time, is that you might end up spending decades paying off that student loan bill. That dream job with the dream salary, it might suck the soul right out of you. It may cost you your family. It may cost you your marriage. It may cost you countless sleepless nights. See, that's the thing about money is that it is merciless. Because whenever you're talking about money, I don't care the context, you're always talking about the law. And I think that gets back to our our parable here. Jesus says that the manager was just accused of misusing the money, of mishandling, mismanaging what belonged to his master. He doesn't present any evidence, and he doesn't come right out and say, well, it was true. He was guilty of mismanaging the money. But the point, for, the point for us is that money can always accuse us. Because money is part of the law, you can always be accused of mismanaging your money. Uh, I think I can prove that. I think I can uh, make you feel a little guilty this morning for how you've used your money even though I don't have any proof. I've never seen one of your W-2s. I don't know what's in your bank account. I don't know how you spend your money from week to week and day to day. But just to show you how money can always accuse, just think about this statistic. So in America, the average American spends about 5% of their income on various forms of entertainment. So movies or sports, you know, various forms of entertainment. In the Wells, just a couple of years ago, a survey was performed, and it found that the average Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod member gave only 2.5% of their income in their offerings. Where do you stand? Are you even at the 2.5% mark, which is fairly low, considering we spend twice that much on entertainment? What does how we spend our money show us about what really is ruling in our hearts? Who are we really serving if we take a look at our budgets? 
But I think about this. If you, if you just saved $20 a week, if you, if you went to Starbucks one, le one less time, if you ate out one less time, just save 20 bucks a week, you would have a thousand, at the end of the year, you would have a thousand dollars more that you could give to the work of the church. Just $20 a week. We all have pretty nice homes and pretty nice cars and we go on nice vacations and we buy nice clothes. Just think if instead of spending all of those thousands of dollars on ourselves, how many more missionaries could we send out into the world to proclaim the gospel? How many more pastors could we train for service in the church? How many more churches could we plant and build right here in America? See, I don't have a shred of evidence that you have mismanaged your money at all, but aren't you squirming a little bit? That's what money does. Money is a merciless master. It's always accusing us because it is a matter of the law. Money is a merciless master. Now, if we didn't realize that before this, sadly, I think the church might be to blame. Because at some point, the church, and maybe even back to the time of the Pharisees, the church decided that Maybe we can serve both God and money. Maybe we can teach the people how to navigate the incredibly narrow line between serving God and serving money. How to walk that tightrope. You've heard the sermons, right? Uh, encouraging you to serve God with your money. Um, Jesus doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, you can't serve both God and money, but you should serve God with your money. He doesn't come right out and say that. Or the church maybe has said in the past, if you, just, if you just allot your budget this way, if you prioritize your budget this way, first you give to the church, then you take care of your family, then you pay your taxes, then you give to charity. If you just do that faithfully, then you're off the hook. Then you don't have to worry. Then God is happy with you. Or, or maybe they would go back to the Old Testament and say, God told his people in the Old Testament Give 10% of your income, and if, if you give 10% of your income today, then you're fine. Then you're justified before God. The thing is, it's an absolute lie. The way you spend your money could never justify you before God. That's what Jesus was talking about when, when he uh, addressed the, the Pharisees after they sneered at him. It wasn't just because they loved money. It was because they thought they could justify themselves in the eyes of God by how they spent their money. It's not, they may have been greedy, but I'm sure they were upstanding members of the church. They gave their tithes faithfully. The problem was that they trusted that tithe to make them right in the eyes of God. I don't care how much money you give to the church. I don't care how much money you give to charity. I don't care how much money you have at all. It can never justify you in the eyes of God. So what's the alternative? I mean, shouldn't there be an encouragement on the other side that, uh, well, if you just give a little bit more, then God will be happy with you? Well, that's not true either. That's an abomination before God. That's a lie. Money is merciless. There's no alternative to it. You can't just give more and make God happy with you. It is a merciless master, always accusing you. So, you can take your money and you can do what you want with it. You can give it. You can share it. You can invest it. You can save it. You can throw it out. You can burn it up. You can shred it. It doesn't matter what you do with your money. It's never going to justify you before God. 
no amount of money can pay the price for your sins. So what do we do? How do we, how do we get this idol of money which has such an iron grip around our hearts? How do we get rid of it? Well, it starts with repentance. And in this sense, repentance is not saying, well, I shouldn't have spent that money there or I shouldn't have indulged myself with that meal or whatever. Now, repentance here means to have a proper understanding of what money is. It is an inanimate object. It is not God. Money did not create you. Money does not preserve you. Money does not protect or provide for you. Money cannot damn you. It cannot forgive you. Money cannot save you. Repent and understand that. Understand that money doesn't have any power over you. It is powerless because it is inanimate. It is an idol. Repent of ever letting money take the place in your heart and life that only God should have. So what's the good news then? Well, I've heard sermons, I'm sure you've heard sermons like this, where it goes, yeah, you've sinned with your use of money, you've mismanaged the money just like this manager here, and uh, you should repent of that. But take comfort because Jesus died to pay for those sins. He died to free you from your slavery to money. And now guess what? The good news is now you're free to give even more money to the church. You've heard those sermons, right? Is that true? Does God need us in order for his church to function, to operate? There's, it's hard to imagine anything more blasphemous than that, that the creator of everything would need the little that we can give, which already belongs to him, to keep his church functioning. He didn't have a whole lot of, of patience for that kind of attitude in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. Because the people in both the Old and New Testament at times sought to make themselves right in the eyes of God by what they did or what they gave to him. So in the book of Malachi, the Lord says, would somebody please close the doors to the temple so that these people stop bringing me their self-righteous gifts? In the New Testament, uh, Paul, told the Roman, or Paul told the people in Athens, he said, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. So the good news cannot be, now you're freed from those sins of money mismanagement. You're freed to give even more to God because that goes back to the original abomination of trying to justify yourself in God's eyes by your use of money, and that is impossible. So what's the real bottom line of this parable then? Remember that Jesus told parables to illuminate heavenly truths. He didn't tell parables to modify our behavior. So this parable is not really about the wrong or the right way to spend your money, but rather between the way that the people of the world use their money and pile up their money and invest their money in order to provide for their futures, and how the children of the light will use the true riches that God has given us to prepare eternal dwellings, or to allow us into eternal dwellings. And that's what Jesus says. He says, the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their their own generation than the children of light are. I tell you, make friends for yourself with unrighteous mammon so that it, when it runs out, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Now, honestly, this is probably one of the most difficult lines in any of Jesus' parables, and, and most 
theologians agree that this is one of Jesus' most difficult parables to understand. But I don't think that giving our money in charity or even giving our money to the church could possibly open up heaven for us, right? How can we pay to justify ourselves in the eyes of God? We can't do that. So it's, it's not an apples-to-apples comparison. Jesus is saying, look at how shrewd the people of the world are with money so that they have a place to, to stay. They have a, a retirement waiting for them. You, Christians, be even shrewder with the true blessings that God has given you. What are those? Obviously the means of grace, the gospel and word and sacrament. These are the things that open up heaven for us. Make friends with those because by using these means of grace, you are making friends with God. Actually, He's becoming friends with you. Where do we find the real good news, the real gospel in this section? I think in Jesus' parables, you can often find the good news and the part of it that doesn't make sense, that is unreal to, to true life. And I think there are probably two interconnected parts of the parable that are not really sensical, right? First of all, for a rich guy, this master was really stupid, wasn't he? At least fiscally speaking. And he found out that his manager had been misusing, mismanaging his money, and he didn't have him hauled off to jail right away. Well, that's not the way it works in our world. If you get caught stealing from your company, security's going to come up with a box, and you're gonna, they're going to put your stuff in the box and walk you out to your car, and you're not going to have access to anything financial from that point on. But this master allows his manager to walk out and continue working on his behalf, uh, and, and, and really robbing from him, right? Marking down these two bills, 20% and 50%. That's the part that doesn't make sense. Why would the manager allow that to happen? He showed an incredible amount of mercy, didn't he? The, 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 the master was merciful to his son, or to his manager, and that's kind of the core of this parable is the master's mercy. If we picture God as a master, uh, the mercy that he had. Because at the end, and this is always a difficult line to understand, he commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. I wouldn't commend someone for robbing from me, would you? Well, he didn't commend him for robbing from him. He didn't commend him for being dishonest. He commended him for being Shrewd. How was he shrewd? And this is how it connects to the the first part, where the master didn't immediately lock him up. His shrewdness came out in the fact that he stopped relying on money, even his master's money, for his future, and instead relied on his master's mercy. You see the shift there where he turned away from the the material things, the earth, the money, and he turned instead towards his master? Because he knew, and the parable says this, or Jesus says this in his explanation of the parable, that money's going to run out. Eventually, no matter how much you have, it won't matter when you're buried six feet deep. You're going to need something better than if you're going to hope to have an eternal dwelling and be welcomed into that eternal dwelling. And it is the mercy of the Lord that will get you there. That's what the Pharisees didn't understand. 
They did not understand the Lord's mercy. And here's the thing about mercy is that it's free to us, but it cost God a lie. It cost him dearly. It didn't just cost him 20% or 50%. It cost him 100% of his son. In order for the Lord to be merciful to us and to welcome us into eternal dwellings where we could never afford to go, Jesus came into this world so that we wouldn't be sent to destruction. God decided that instead of asking us, demanding us to lead perfect lives, He would demand that His Son lead a perfect life in our place. God decided that instead of demanding that we don't have any greed or covetousness in our heart, because we can't, because we've all been greedy and covetous at times, He demanded that His Son be perfectly free from greed and covetousness. Because we have racked up a debt of sin that we could never pay in a million years, God made His Son bleed and die for them all on the cross. That's the kind of mercy that the Lord has shown to us. And that's what this parable is teaching us, that not to rely on our money, not to serve our money, but to serve the one who gave his son for us. So this parable is not really about how you spend your money. It's rather about who your master is. And Jesus lays out two options. You can either serve God or you can serve money, but you cannot serve both. Take this away, that money is merciless. It will always, always accuse you. And the worst part is, no matter how much of it you have, it can never justify you before God. But God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, you can trust in him, not only to be welcomed into eternal dwellings, but to provide everything else that you need for this life. In Jesus' name, amen.